I'm really excited to announce that we're gonna have a five-part web-based series called From Stress to Success. These sessions are gonna have lots of discussion about these areas. And again, really practical things that when put together, create a great path towards not just surviving, but thriving in challenging times. The topics are managing burnout and emotional labor, thriving through long-term stress, protecting your sleep, creating spaces of vulnerability for yourself and your team, and finally, energy management. The conversation about mental health has never been more open than it is now, and we have an opportunity to go even further with that. I think back to my time as a therapist, and sometimes it felt like we had the secret combination that could really help people that really wasn't being broadcasted out to enough. So why don't we take this next step together? Please follow the link and I hope you'll join us. Once you start to acknowledge that you're mortal and you start measuring from the end, the things that don't matter can fall away much easier. You get rid of a lot of things in your life that just don't matter. And I think that's the blessing that comes from acknowledging our mortality. And I really wish that people would would be able to see that, that the sooner they do that, the sooner they can improve the quality of their life overall and reduce that stress. That was a clip from today's guest. You know, I have lived a, a really fun and full life. You know, I'm always on the move. I get to travel a ton. I've built up businesses. I've been able to like do a lot of uh, creative stuff. My life is often feels like a whirlwind and it's been mostly a really, really cool ride. But within that, as I'm, you know, I'm hitting 50 this summer, I'm like, oh, damn, I'm going to die. And when I say I'm going to die, it's not imminent. It's just the real recognition of like, oh, shit, at some point I actually am going to die. And it's the first time in my life, like this kind of past like five or six ish years where I've really been thinking about it and starting to prepare like, well, what would that look like? What kind of, you know, legacy do I want to leave? What can I do here? And the more I th the think, the, the more aware I become of it, the less ability to plan for it I feel I have. Like there's so many big questions. The interesting thing is that I have a, a, a colleague and a friend that I've known for a long time who's a death educator. And I always have seen her posting on LinkedIn all this cool stuff. And I'm always liking it. But just recently I was like, I gotta talk to Gina about this. It's cool just conceptually like understanding this role that she has created and this like industry is kind of like what I'd say is maybe an emerging industry, this business that she's built. But also, also like I learned so much in this episode. So if you are someone who's comfortable with death, listen to this. If you're someone afraid of death, listen to this. Because we don't go into any like gory details, but we really get into it. Like we really talk about what you should do. Uh, this is a real fun one. I think it's for everyone. Uh, but before we get to that, please rate, review, and subscribe. My name is Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. Gina, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. All right. So for the uninitiated, for those who don't know, who are you and what do you do? My name is Gina Valite. I am the founder of Caron Consulting. I am a death educator. 
So I help people get comfortable with talking about the their inevitable demise, if you will. I do workshops. I help people guide people through planning, pre-planning, and executorship. Okay, there's so much to talk about here. And uh, the first is that you and I are our old buddies. We've known each other for a long time. And uh, it's just great to see you and talk to you. And you as well. But when I, I was looking on, on LinkedIn, you know, stay in touch on LinkedIn, I saw how you shifted your career. And I was like, I need to know more about this. Well, funny story. 2017, I got laid off from my energy job and was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, wasn't sure, and took a little bit of a break, got bored, and decided that I was going to start my own company, my own consulting business. And I originally started out thinking that I would go back into some of the project management, change management stuff that I had been doing in my corporate life and decided mm, maybe that wasn't quite what I wanted to do anymore. So I melded some of my loves. I'm a bit of a polymath. So I melded my love of old dead things um, as a former archaeologist and anthropologist and my love of um, change management and decided that I would become a, a death educator and consult on how to navigate the change, one of life's biggest life changes. Um, which is death. So was this a thing that existed beforehand? Like, is there like a death educator industry or is just this something you were like, I'm a death educator and now that's a thing? Well, and that was a hard thing. This is like, no, I kind of invented my own role. I was like, when I started investigating what I could do in the death industry, I was like, well, I don't want to be a funeral director because they're on call 24 uh, seven. People don't generally die on a schedule. I... You know, I, and I didn't really know if there was any other roles in the industry that that would suit me. And I was I was seeking I was seeking a label that was already existing. And when I kind of landed on what I wanted to do after talking to funeral directors and funeral homes and death doulas and people like that, I was like, no, I, I want I want something slightly different. And um, I was in a small business class. And one of the women there was a, was an executor advisor. She was a certified executor advisor. And as she was introducing what she was doing, navigating the paperwork and the, you know, the legal and taxation end of things, I'm like, that's what I want to do. I want to meld my project management and change management skills with my fascination with mortality and, and, and um, thanatology and end of life stuff. And it just became, what do I call myself? Uh, death project manager kind of was a bit of a long title. So um, I also have a lot of background in training and education mm -hmm. and instructional design. And I was like, hey, I want to design my own workshops and just teach people what they need to know uh, to get them to the finish line. And so you just made up this, you created this term, this title, yes. and you planted yeah. your flag. I did. And, and, you know, funny enough, I did meet another death educator who works mostly with individuals. I, I generally tend to work with groups and educate groups, but uh, her name is also Gina, mm -hmm. <laughs> funny enough. But she's really, um, she's one of the few death educators that I've met. There, there's been a few over the years because I've been doing this now for five or six years. Right. So, uh, you know, there's more that have come and, and put their spin on it and, and things like that. And we see a lot of uh, funeral directors. I'm, I'm sure you've heard of Caitlin Doty, for example. She's a funeral director who's who's been big in the in the death education industry as far as 
demystifying the funeral industry. And of course, death doulas are becoming more and more popular, end of life doulas. Um, but yeah, I just kind of wanted to forge my own path, do my own thing. I, I love it. Uh, a, I love people who bet on themselves and I love people who kind of like take risks and create their own thing. Uh, this area specifically is like, of all of the people I've interviewed and all of the conversations I've had and all the people I've met professionally, I'm like, I have never heard of someone doing something like this. And A, it's just like, I love talking to you, but B, it's like, I want to talk about this thing. So let's just say, let's start with like, a, just a, a unpack it for everyone as a starting point. Why does someone need a death educator? So if there, if there wasn't a death educator, what would be going on that would be the problem that you would be, the, that your services would be the solution for? So the problem that I solve is, or the problem that exists if, if, if someone like me doesn't, is, is that people come to the end of life unprepared. And I hear a lot of times people say, well, I'm not really gonna care because I'm gonna be dead, but it's the people that we leave behind that have to clean up that mess. So the, this, the problem that I solve for people is helping them prepare for that massive life event that is death, that is inevitable that everybody is going to face. So I think it's important that we acknowledge our mortality and that we view it as something that is inevitable and preparing for it is going to help us get on living life. I mean, the cool thing about being a death educator is it allows when, when people plan for their inevitable demise, it allows them to live better. Mm. It allows them to focus on living as opposed to that underlying stress we have about end of life and planning for end of life and what comes next once we're gone and the people that we've left behind have to close out our life. It's interesting. Everyone knows they're going to die. Like everyone does factually know they're going to die. And it's like knowing two things as being equally true. You 100% know you're going to die and you 100% know you're never going to die. Like mm -hmm. you factually know you're going to die, but actually recognizing yourself as no longer existing is like unbelievable. Like you can't really, most people can't wrap their heads around that. So you know mm -hmm. two things as being true, but only one of them is true. And depending on where you are at life, where, where these two truths kind of like rub against each other is kind of an interesting idea. So I'm about to turn 50. I'll turn 50 this summer. And I really only started to like wrap my head around the idea that I actually of course, I've known I'm going to die ever since I, you, you understand what death is as like a little kid, but really understanding that I actually wasn't going to be around. I didn't really start wrapping my head psychologically around that until I was in like my mid-ish 40s. And I, I went through a very difficult series of events where I was like, oh, crap, I'm going to die. Like at some point, I'm going to die. And that could be two days from now or it could be like 50 years from now. So it's no wonder that people don't talk about death from a like uh, first person perspective. They talk about death, but they don't talk about their death or want to plan about it. And I don't even know if it's from an avoidance point of view, but more so from it's like, it's inconceivable that I won't exist anymore, even though I actually know I won't exist. It's, it's interesting, you know, um, there's always an underlying stress. And what happens and what you're experiencing is you're starting to measure your life from the end instead of from the beginning. And what that means is that we are starting to acknowledge our mortality and seeing things as, um, you know, 
a little bit more limited and that reality is becoming more clear. It's a gift when we do this and there's a piece in the middle of our life where we just don't acknowledge it, but it's a nice gift because once you start to acknowledge that you're mortal and you start measuring from the end, the things that don't matter can fall away much easier. You get rid of a lot of things in your life that just don't matter. And I think that's the blessing that comes from acknowledging our mortality. And I really wish that people would, would be able to see that, that the sooner they do that, the sooner they can improve the quality of their life overall and reduce that stress that mm. they've got. Because it's always in the back of our minds. Yeah, we know that like people could be um, not talking about death and not planning for death and not being in a kind of a death preparedness state of mind maybe because of avoidance and like anxiety, fear and all that, but also just like from a, without any ability to really wrap your mind around that you're going to die. You know, you know it, but you just can't actually take that in. Uh, and not even from an avoidance point of view, you just can't, you just can't think of it. Um, it's almost like, uh, you know, the, the number 1 million exists, but if I asked you to like imagine what 1 million rubber duckies look like. You just couldn't do it. Like you just couldn't wrap your head around it. So mm -hmm. when you are working with clients, like how do you manage those two states? Like some are like anxiety avoidance, fear avoidance, talking about death where others are just like, I literally can't wrap my mind around it. You know, that's a, that's a really interesting question because when I first started my business, that was the roadblock that I kept hitting is I wanted people because I was ready to do the pre-planning end of things and, and, and new people needed it, you know, trying to convince people they needed it and they weren't there yet. There generally has to be some sort of catalyzing event to get people ready to talk about it and to be that personal and specific. So what I learned was to pull back and, and talk and think about death from a perspective of philosophy and theoretical. So when we, when we approach it softly, from that theoretical and philosophical point of view um and we and we invite it into our lives in a little bit more gentle way without it being so personal then we can start to build that relationship with our mortality from a from a safer place and i think that that's a that's that's something that i've learned over the years is let's start with the theoretical and the philosophical philosophical and then we can work up to now how does that apply to me me personally this whole topic is fascinating to me because like around uh, end of life preparedness, uh, I had a friend in the past few years, like a real, real good friend of mine who had a family, family member that they weren't close with uh, who had passed away and was prepared and had left quite a large sum of money to be distributed across the family. And they were prepared, knew in advance they were going to go, kind of had a sense of how long I've got left to live. Their mental faculties had had uh, declined as they got closer, um, and when they passed away, there was like pretty like strong instructions, and it was still a complete shit show. Like after they passed, it's like people's like this person's trying to steal money and this, and like the family devolved into like just battle. And a friend of mine was telling me about it, who was relatively detached from the whole thing because they weren't close with that family member and weren't close with the rest of the family, but they themselves without intending to was going to benefit largely. They're going to get quite a large sum of money. And they were like, oh my God, I feel like I've suddenly got like 20 enemies that, were, that I'm sort of distantly related to. So that's like someone who had really planned for their death 
and mm -hmm. knew well in advance. I can't imagine what happens if people don't have that. Well, you know, I always tell people when I'm talking about planning for end of life, this is like, we're weird about death and we're weird about money. And when you put death and money together, the, the weirdness expands exponentially. And what you think is a loving, caring bunch of people is going to, to devolve. Or you get the other way where you have a family that's not close and this can bring them together. Every situation is different. With the lack of a will and with the lack of a plan, and even more importantly, doesn't matter whether you have a will or not or a valid will or not, because some people have wills that aren't valid. The most important thing and the most um, critical piece is communication and transparency. So whether you have a will or not, letting your wishes be known is going to mitigate some of that stress that people have, if whether they have a will or not, like get it out in the open, talk about it, you know, share the will, talk about what your final wishes are for your end of life care and for distribution of your assets and, you know, all those kinds of things. And that's going to help mitigate some of that because what what's happening is People are going through big change and, oh, they get all the feels, right? They've got all the feelings and they don't know what to do with it. Yeah. And so when we talk about it, it gives people to integrate that change a little bit easier and a little bit sooner so that when the event occurs, things don't get quite as weird sometimes. So if someone's preparing for death, like what's the role of, okay, so let's say you go to a lawyer, you get a will. But like, what does an executor do? And, and is it necessary? Like, or is that just like, if you get a will, do you automatically have an executor or do you have to do something in advance? Like, what do you do here? So the executor is kind of like your death power of attorney. So in life, you have a power of attorney. So generally, when you fill out a will, you fill out a power of attorney. And the person is re responsible for your finances and your assets when you're alive. An executor is does the same role. They are responsible for um, distributing your assets and closing out your life after you die. So they're the ones that are legally and financially responsible for your financial footprint on the earth after you leave, financially your digital footprint once you leave this, this plane of existence. So their role is to follow your wishes to the best of their ability and to the best of your estate's ability. So they're distributing your assets, closing out your life, you know, shutting down your Facebook and Instagram account, erasing your browser history. That's the role of an executor is to make sure that that your um, your assets are taken care of in your life, your debts, your taxes, um, all that kind of stuff is taken care of. Mike, I promise I'll erase your browser history. Thank you. <laughs> I'll do that for you, I've man. I've told many friends I would do it. <laughs> I'll do that for you. So what is a death doula? A death doula is an advocate for the dying. So it is uh, a death doula is someone who takes care of the physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being of someone who is actively in the process of, of dying. Mm -hmm. So more heart-centered care mm -hmm. than, say, what I do, which is more <laughs> death project management paperwork and legal and, and taxation type stuff. Um, their their role is to be that voice for the for the dying, to be that bridge between professionals and family, and be the voice for the dying and help the dying um, manage the passage with a little bit more peace and kindness. Yeah. So you exactly where where went to where I was gonna go. It's like okay, this is what an executor does. This is what a death do a death doula does. 
So I love how you explain it. And when Monica shared the brief from your conversation, it was like, oh, a death project manager, like that makes a lot of sense. So could you explain your services and really explain that aspect of it? All right. So as a death educator, what I do is I run workshops and educational sessions, whether they're presentations, lunch and learns or workshops to small groups of individuals to talk about various aspects of either planning for end of life or planning for executorship. I like to I, I sort of informally refer to it as life hacking and then death hacking. So figuring out what to do while you're still here and then figuring out what to do after. So the workshops are generally two hours in length and we do really practical stuff. So it's about learning what you need to know to make really good, well-informed decisions about what you need to do, whether for it's for your advanced care plan and your personal directive, whether it's for your, um, for your will and preparing to write your will or to discuss your will or have those important conversations with your family, whether you're trying to choose an executor and you are not sure who would be a right fit for the job because it is a big job um, and has a lot of legal responsibility associated with it that most people don't realize. Uh, whether you are an executor and you don't know what to do now that you've got the title and the role, uh, I'm there to help. So, you know, those kinds of things. Um, anything related to uh, the change that that comes with death, I can take care of and 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 help inform people about those those items. Um, one of my most favorite workshops to to facilitate and is also very popular is body organ and tissue donation mm -hmm. and how those particular aspects of end of life intersect, how you can make sure that your wishes are known, what order do you have to do them in, what paperwork do you have to fill in? What considerations do you have to think about when you're thinking about whether you want to be an anatomical gift or whether you want to donate all your bits and pieces, whether it's to science or to someone who needs them? I'm going to relate this uh, in, in a way. I'm going to make an odd comparison, but anyone who's listened to the podcast will know that I do this often. I'm going to talk about being in a band. So like this sounds like to me, it's like when you're preparing for your first, let's say, international tour. Where are we going to get our merch printed? Do we need work visas places? When do we have to have our passports? Who's going to drive us? Where are they going to drive us? What do we do about our, our finances? If we're carrying money, do we put it in the bank? Do we do bank transfers? How much do we pay, have to pay our booking agent? Where do we get our, you know, X, Y, and Z? All of these things where you're like, hey, I know how to go on tour. Like I know how to play a show or I know how to like get into a jam room, plug in my guitar and play with my band. I know I figured out how to go down the street and play a show. I figured out how to go on tour in North America. But if you're planning on going on tour in Europe, it's like a totally different thing. And you really need to like understand how to manage that thing. I generally, I'm going to say this very lightly, know how to live. Like, you know, I know how to like, you know, pay my mortgage, pay my taxes, you know, like I know how to go to the bank, where to get my groceries, like, you know, all, all, of, the, all of the general stuff. Do I know anything about death, which is part of life? Zero percent, except that I'm like, that will happen at some point. So this makes like incredible sense. Why isn't this an industry? I think because it's such a taboo subject and, and 
you know, as a, as a change management professional, one of the things that really struck me and the reason I really wanted to combine change management with uh, end of life planning is because death is a big change and the things that we go through with change um, are, are, well, there's an emotional component to it, but why don't we do this? Why isn't this an industry? I think it's because we as human beings are meaning makers and we like to know things. And death is like the ultimate unknown. We can't control it. We we don't know what's there. And so from a change management perspective, we don't want to go there because it's really uncomfortable because we can't know what's next. How do you find clients? Like how have you <laughs> how have you built up this business? Uh, well, I started out early days, I, I set up a death cafe, which is a global movement. I'm not sure if you're um, familiar with death cafe, but for those of your listeners who aren't, it's a global movement. It's in over 80 countries around the world. It was started in, in London in 2017 by a gentleman named John Underwood and his mother. And it was to provide safe space for people to talk about death and dying mm -hmm. and to um because we don't have anywhere in society where, where we can do that, where it's comfortable. And the whole idea is to provide a safe space to allow people to, to talk about whatever is on their mind about mortality and about death and dying. So back when I started my business at the beginning of 2018, I started by setting up a death cafe, not to find clients. That's against the philosophy of death cafe. But I wanted to know what people were thinking about I wanted to know what was going on in the heads of people who were thinking about mortality. So I started a death cafe. I started a class called death literacy just on meetup. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a 12 month program. So every month we tackled a different topic related to big life changes of which the biggest one we talked about was, was end of life. So we talked about wills. We talked about executorship. We talked about vacation planning and emergency contacts. We talked about emergency funds for big, big life changes. So I started with uh, the death literacy classes, which I ran for two years to sort of gather more information. And from there, I went and reached out to um, public libraries, municipalities, seniors associations. And eventually the word just got out there that, hey, there's a death expert out there. Uh, CBC started calling me every time they had a topic around death and dying. Um, I'd get a call. Hey, you're our death expert. Why don't you come on, you know, CBC and talk about, you know, death and dying from your perspective, whether it was municipal graveyards and cemeteries or whether it was uh, during COVID, there was an, an um, a discussion around what do you do when somebody has died? You're in a pandemic. You haven't been able to go over for the funeral and now you're traveling. And that dichotomy between having joy of being with your family again and also having going for a delayed funeral or memorial. And, um, you know, how do you balance that that joy of being able to see your family with the sadness of having to acknowledge that someone has died? So lots of different topics around death and dying. And, and that just kind of got the word out there and people started reaching out. And, and that that's kind of all she wrote. And yeah, lots of word of mouth. I have so many questions. Uh, first, I have two uh, ludicrous comment, uh, comments. The first is Death Cafe. As soon as you said that, I imagined every single goth that I went to high school <laughs> with 
going to like a coffee shop and being very philosophical. I'm thinking of this one specific person who used to do this like wild dance. All of them are who I think of in the Death Cafe. Second, was it John Underwood, did you say? Yes. Who came up with this concept? Well, actually, the concept itself came from a Swiss ethnologist called called Bernard Curtaz, who was the first... um, uh, person to sort of have this idea of cafe mortel, like like a cafe, a salon where people can talk about death and dying. John Underwood adapted it and used uh, used the same sort of concept. Don't you think that's an eerily similar name to Undertaker? <laughs> Underwood, Undertaker. Uh, I mean, come on, come on. Yeah. <laughs> All right. These are my ludicrous comments. Let's Let's go further. What made you interested enough in death to even want to do this. Like when, when, so when I was like, how'd you start your business? You're like, well, I started a death cafe. Not the answer that most people <laughs> would give to anything. So where did this interest in the topic of death and the, the comfort with that discussion start for you? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I do have a degree in anthropology with a specialization in archaeologist archaeology, which, as I said, is, you know, the study of old dead things. So I've always been really fascinated. And I also really like dinosaurs, uh, fossils, other old dead things. But this whole idea of a mortuary practices when I was practicing archaeology, when I when I was doing that for a living, um, the whole concept of mortuary practices and what we did with our mortal remains when we were finished, you know, with our magical meat skeletons, what we did with those things through different cultures around the world and the universality of how we um, feared, both feared death and were also, you know, putting rites and ceremonies around that passage that and that liminal state between the two. So I had this background in anthropology and this fascination with mortuary practices, not in a gothy way, not in a morbid way at all. You know, I always say I'm not, I'm not morbid. I very rarely wear black, wearing black t-shirt today, but you know, um, I, it, it's more along the lines of the ritual and the thought and the philosophy behind what happens next and what do we do for this massive event in our lives and 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 why do we do it so you had this interest and you had this like early career so yeah. how did you end up working in the energy sector in the in with what you were doing in it oh my gosh well i am a bit of a polymath so my career has been all over the map and it just so happened that the last iteration of my career before i started my own business happened to be in uh, records and change management, uh, you know, change management, project management, uh, you know, data management, and that kind of thing. And I really, really enjoyed organizational change management because I love change, which, by the way, is also a really uncomfortable topic for a lot of people. So I'm one of those people that just is gets excited about the unknown. Uh, I don't know why. I just do. I, I just like the imponderables. I, I That really fascinates me. So change was something I really enjoyed and teaching was something I really enjoyed. And mortuary practices was something that just always fascinated me. And I went from a leadership role and doing project work to how can I take that sort of institutionalized theory and methodology and marry it with something I really enjoy. 
you know, something else I really enjoy. And that's kind of where my business idea and philosophy came from, was just to put everything I liked together and said, hey, let's see if we can make a career out of this. Let's see if we can do something with this to make some money. The reason I ask outside of, I think it's uh, a really fascinating thing that you've, you've created is, you know, often people ask me like, well, hey, how did you, how did you start Cadence? Like, how did you do this? How did you do that? And a lot of it wasn't like me sitting down and like mapping out this like seven or eight year business plan. I was like, well, I'm pretty good at this. And I like doing this. And I have some edu education and skill set in this. I think I'll do, I'll just do this. And it wasn't like some big structured like thing that I, that I planned out. I just kind of followed my gut on what was next. And that's how it happened. It sounds like the same thing happened with you. For sure. You know, and it kind of just found me like how I ended up doing, not doing people's independent, you know, like meeting with people and consulting with individuals and doing their paperwork. It was just kind of like the flow of all of these natural skills and talents that I love to do and sort of picking out, you know, as an entrepreneur, we get to choose picking out the things that I didn't want to do and putting them aside or outsourcing them or delegating them and going, yeah, this is cool. This keeps me wanting to get out of bed in the morning. This keeps me jazzed. This keeps me excited. This keeps me passionate. And as we age, you know, we need things that are going to make us want to get out of bed in the morning and, and, and keep us energized because we can be very, um, very protective of the energy that we expend as we get older, because we just don't seem to have as much as we used to. A question that just keeps popping into my mind here. Is it a benefit or a challenge if people have a spiritual belief they follow uh, when they're doing, when they're working with you? I don't think it really matters. If whatever our guiding principles are, I always work on the, on the, on the basis of values, whatever are your values. And that is actually one of the first things that I, that I point people in the direction of. So it's one of the first things we do when we do death literacy classes is we, we focus on what are our values. Every decision we should make should be values-based, whether it's a spiritual practice, whether it's uh, you know something else that's your guiding principle. Your guiding principle is your guiding principle and any decision you make based on your values is never gonna be uh, a decision that you're gonna regret. So I think whether people have a spiritual practice and they feel they know what's gonna come next or whether they don't have a spiritual practice and they're like, well, this is the end and it's very technical and very clinical, it doesn't really matter from the perspective of you need to make some arrangements to close out your life so that you don't leave a big mess for those you leave behind. Could you give me an example of a decision someone could make based on their values? Certainly. Um, certain uh, spiritual beliefs, certain religions do not believe in cremation, for example. So they would make decisions on what their funeral would look like and then what their body disposition would look like or their departure planning would look like based on their spiritual practices or what their spiritual group believes. Mm -hmm. um, another one might be, um, for example, um, when I'm working with, uh, with the Islamic community and with Muslims, Muslims have a belief in uh, um, how they divide up their estate. You know, there's a certain percentage that has to go to charity, for example. There's a certain percentage that has to be left as a legacy for family. So 
whatever your spiritual practices are, whatever your values are, can help guide you making a decision. But it doesn't have to be a spiritual belief. It can be any sort of value that you have. So if financial security is one of your core values because you grew up poor and you can make decisions based on that value for what you feel is going to be a good legacy to leave your family. In your experience with what you see, what are some of the just common, like, I guess, rookie rookie mistakes that people make uh, when, when it comes to death? Rookie mistakes that people make um, when they are planning for end of life is they think it's all about what they need or what they want, and it's not. Um, when you are planning for end of life, especially for closing out your life, you need to think about uh, what do the people need who are being left behind? What do they need emotionally? You know, when you're planning your funeral, you can say, oh, I want, you know, I want you to build me the Taj Mahal and I want, you know, I want uh, these particular pallbearers and I want these types of flowers. But really those arrangements should be based on what the people you're leaving behind need to help them through their grieving process or to enter into their grief. Hmm. That makes sense? It makes perfect sense. It's just, it's interesting you say that. I'm, I made a rookie mistake this morning. Monica and I were talking about, because obviously I knew we were having this podcast, so I'm reflecting on it. And I was like, hey, I was telling Monica, like, I don't want a funeral. Don't, don't do any of that job. Just, you know, cremate me and throw me in the ocean. Like, I don't care or, or wherever. But maybe that's not what they need. I was, I was in a very me-centered kind of way in there. So I was already making a rookie mistake. Well, and I mean, that's the one I hear mostly. You know, we've, we, you know one, of, one of my first workshops that I did, which I absolutely love and would love to continue doing them, is uh, death brunches. You get a group of friends or family together. We have brunch, and I provide the infotainment, if you will. I provide, hey, let's, uh, let's plan our memorials together as a group because it should be transparent. It should be something that you share with people. And it starts out from that perspective of this is what I want. This is what I need. I want to be buried. I want to be cremated. I want to be thrown in the ocean. I want to be buried under the apple tree, whatever it is. It's a starting place and it's familiar. But what we need to do with that is we need to take that and say, okay, here's what I would like. Now let's talk about it from your perspective. So going back to Monica and saying, hey, uh, this is what I want, but what do you need? What's hmm. going to help you along this journey? Hmm. right it's a real interesting way of looking at it because it's like it's like you start with what's well, like well it's me who's dying like <laughs> i should get what i want but it's like my opinion matters the least since i won't be here you won't okay, that's be there a... well you'll be there in spirit perhaps but you definitely won't be there physically to enjoy the catering whatever the catering yeah. may be <laughs> totally. Totally. okay that's a great rookie mistake what's another rookie mistake another rookie mistake is putting too much detail into the will the will should be a very evergreen categorical document that talks about categories of assets and general descriptions. When you get into the detail and you get, you know, you buy a, a tabletop will from Staples and you fill in every detail about every single thing you own, this is when we run the risk of our wills being invalidated mm -hmm. because there's too much detail and there's too much stuff that changes over time. Which brings us to the other rookie mistake that people make, which is they create a will and then they forget about it and they think, oh, it's one and done. I've created a will 30 years ago and nothing's changed. And, you know, like, no, a will should be reviewed and updated at the rate of change in your life. Hmm. So, for example, 
Most people write their first will when they go on vacation away from their children. They're like all in a panic about what happens if I die on vacation and what's going to happen to my children. And then they don't think about it again. Um, and then they update it again, maybe when they downsize or their kids move away from home, but sometimes not. So you can easily invalidate a will because it's 30 years old and your life has moved on and the people that you've named and the beneficiaries you have have predeceased you or things have changed. Mm. So if you are going to write a will, make sure that you review it at the rate of change in your life. So when big changes happen, uh, it's important that we review that document, make sure it's still up to date and make sure that it still meets our needs. If you had just kind of a, a real general suggestion of like how, how, how many times, like how many years should pass before you review your will? Like two, every two years, every four years, every six years? Because I know you're saying the rate of change. It's like, I don't know, life is changing all the time. I, I, what, what would be a rate of change that would get me to do it? All right. So there are some critical points in our lives or some things that happen in our lives. And in one of my presentations, I have a whole list. <laughs> mm -hmm. But basically, the rate of change that I'm talking about is you acquire a new person in your life, whether it's a spouse, a child, a stepchild, you, you, you gain family, or you lose family, or you lose people that are close to you. So that would be a big change that would trigger maybe you need to review your will. Um, you gain or lose major assets. You buy a new house, you buy a new car, you sell the family cabin, um, you inherit a very expensive piece of art. These are things that should trigger that you are that your assets have changed and that you need to change your will or at least review it and make sure that your will still encompasses those kinds of details. So when I'm talking about the rate of change in our lives, what I'm talking about is the big changes, the big rites of passage that we have in our life, marriage, death, graduation, um, you know, those those types of things. Uh, you become a homeowner, um, you retire. Is there a, a schedule? Um, why not review your will every year when you do your taxes? Hmm. But to do or, that, do you have to consult your lawyer if you want to make any changes every single time? Well, I mean, again, it depends on how your your will is written because you can have a will, you can have codicils to your will that just need to be initials. Here in Alberta, we have the ability to do holographic wills, which are just handwritten, non-witnessed wills uh, in British Columbia, not so much. Um, you know, so it's different from province to province and from state to state, but... Do you need to see a lawyer every time you want to make a change in your will? I think that depends on, I guess the technical answer would be yes. If you want to change your will, you do need to see a lawyer and you don't want to do that all the time. But really, honestly, for the big changes, I think is where it becomes important mm -hmm. to make sure that those things are documented legally. Things that may cause, as you were talking about drama early on with family members, um, Things that might cause family drama, like the exchange of assets or leaving of legacy and things that are worth monetary value, for example. I'm thinking of every single person that I know that is like around-ish my peer group around their you know late 40s, early 50s, plus everyone I know who's like 10-ish years younger than me. I can't think of one single person that I know, including myself, that's out there reviewing. A, I have... I don't even have a will, actually. So 
I'm trying to think of anyone that I even know that has a will or reviews a will, and I can't think of a darn person. So when do people actually start doing this? <laughs> or should, when should they? Much, much like when we think about death and dying, it's, there's usually some sort of catalyzing event that makes us think about this. So for, for different people, it's different things. Usually people start thinking about having a will, like I said, when they travel away from home for the first time without their children. That's usually a really big one for people um, because they're thinking about what what happens to the children if you know if something happens to me. Um, does there need to be a catalyzing event? No, but it's usually what gets people thinking about it. So a death, um, uh, a pandemic. <laughs> there was a bit of a spike in 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 wills <laughs> when the pandemic hit. Um, but to be quite honest. Any time is the right time to have a will because we're ne never guaranteed how much time we have. The other side of that is you can always look at the risk of what happens if I don't have a will. Mm. And you can make a decision as to whether you're willing to take that risk or not. So does everybody have to have a will? Well, it makes it easier for your executor in your state. But if you don't have a lot of assets and you don't have um, a lot of things to leave people, uh, how much is it going to help you to have a will? You know, lawyers and, and estate planners will say, yes, have a will. And I do say, yeah, it's a good idea to have a will. However, it's entirely up to you how much you want to risk what happens to your estate. And part of what I do is educating people on this is what happens when you don't have a will. Right. What so, does an estate planner do? An estate planner is someone who looks at your financial portfolio and plans to ensure that most of what you own your assets are transferred in a way where they're not going to get heavily taxed and it's not going to be a financial burden for the people you're leaving it for so they manage your money your financials generally um and what happens if you don't have a will and you don't have an executor but you have stuff like you own a house and you have these things worst case scenario what happens is the government when when your estate goes to probate well probate is validating of the will but basically when when you die, um, the government will decide who is going to administer your estate and close out your life. So two things are going to happen. Somebody close to you is going to petition to become your executor or your estate administrator. Or if there is nobody who steps forward, the government will assign someone to administer your estate. It's generally a government worker who is an estate administrator of many people. And they will use a mathematical formula, an algorithm, if you will, to um, distribute your assets after your funeral arrangements are paid for, your taxes are filed, including your death taxes, all your creditors are, are taken care of, and then whatever is left over residuals, then the beneficiaries, it'll just be divided equally. There is a formula related to how many children you have, and if it's not your children or your grandchildren, your parents, and there's just a formula. Did you just say death taxes? Yes. That you get taxed for dying? Well, you have a set of final taxes that have to be done. And depending <laughs> on when you die in the, in the course of the year and how close you are to the regular tax season or how long <laughs> the year has passed, um, in your final year, you may have two sets of taxes. Your, your regular taxes <laughs> and your final taxes. 
But basically what happens when you die and part of the role of the executor is to evaluate your estate on the date of your death. So their job is to figure out what you're worth in the eyes of the government. And then that worth gets taxed. Part of what probably people don't like talking about this is it's just like horrifying the stuff that you discover. All right. I've got it. I'm going to, I'm going to let you in on a secret, but by the time this podcast comes out, it will no longer be a secret. Um, our good friend Mike, who is uh, behind the camera here, is going to be proposing uh, to uh, to his wonderful partner very soon. Uh, so Mike is a you know young guy. He's kind of at the beginning of what will be a grand journey in his career and his married life and all this. From a you know end of life perspective, what mm-hmm. should our our young wonderful couple be considering right at the beginning of their their unison? That's a good question. So this can go one of two ways. Um, the interesting thing about when you partner up is that if there's no will, your partner pay- basically gets everything mm-hmm. unless there's previous marriages and relationships and you know children and all that other kind of stuff. So if Mike and his partner decide to do nothing, um, all of their assets will be joint unless anything will be transferred over right to his partner. Now, if Mike decides that it would be a cool idea for for him and his partner to to get a um, uh, matching wills, if you will, (laughs) is there anything really that they need to worry about? it's kind of like a prenup. You have to decide whether that is something that you want to plan for or not. But here's the catch. If at some point there is another spouse or partner down the way um, because of there's been a parting of ways or whatever, then if there's no will, then there can be additional claims on the estate. So if you want mm-hmm. to protect that, uh, where your assets are are sort of transferred to when you die, if you die, when you die, um, then it's good to document. Hmm. If it's not really a concern and you're not really worried about it, then don't worry about it. You get yeah. to assess the risk and what works best for you. Uh, you've given Mike an early wedding present. That's really, it's really go. kind of you. Mike has a question. Is it possible to give my stuff away before the man gets his piece and divides up my assets? Is there a way to circumvent Ottawa? You know, that's a very good question. And part of estate planning and part of what estate planners do is figure out the best way to transfer your assets so that there is less going to the government. And yeah, that is possible. There are some things you need to be aware of in 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 terms of it needs to be formally documented. So it needs to be documented that you are gifting something to someone so that they don't get slapped with capital gains tax which is, you know, when you when you leave something to someone, let's say you have a family cabinet and you're leaving it to to your your offspring, they're going to get dinged with taxes. I mean, death and taxes are and change are all inevitable. So somebody is going to get taxed for it. How you transfer goods to from yourself to someone else defers the taxes in different ways. It doesn't make them go away. It just defers them. Uh, for the if the CRA is listening, I just want to say that was Mike's question, not my question. <laughs> I am a tax abiding Canadian, um, but I also like that information. Yeah. All right. Do you have anything else to say before I go to my next line of questioning? 
there is a, there is a small caveat, a small warning with that. If you start giving things away willy nilly because you're in the throes of of dying, um, that can come back to bite the recipient in the butt if it's not documented and it's not formally the transfer isn't formal. Because one of the roles of the executor is to gather the um, the assets and evaluate the assets of the estate, and if that's those gifts. Or, or those transfers are not documented properly, then they might actually have to be clawed back. And that would be really awful. So document, document, document. Okay, so Mike, if you come bearing gifts, I want you to have like a, a letter with it as well, man. We'll get it in 4K. Thank you, thank you, okay. <laughs> thank you, thank you, I'll do the same for you. Yeah. All right, I, did, I do have a, a question, one more question because we're not trying to just get a bunch of free advice from you. I actually want to hear about your business. I do have one more question. You had mentioned if there were um, previous relationships. So let's say someone has gone through a divorce and there wasn't a, a pre-existing will or anything like that. So someone has a new partner and a brand and, and, and a will, and they had never had a will before, and they're properly divorced from a, from a former spouse. Can a, a former partner make any claim on your current partners, what would be in that will if there was not a pre-existing will before that? Oh, you got the tough question. So so here's the thing. There's always going to be, by the way, I'm not giving anybody legal advice. Uh, I'm not a professional, I'm not a lawyer. Um, but the short answer is it depends. People can always contest a will, <laughs> always, right? Um, so whether it's documented or not, people are going to contest if they want to contest. And that's just going to happen. Whether they'd be successful or not really depends on many factors about, um, about how it goes through the court and what claim they might have on that asset or that thing. So having a will is going to be in the favor of, no, this is how I want this, you know, this is how the estate is to be divided but it still leaves the door open for people to contest the will. And people do contest wills all the time. Mm. <sighs> messy, man, death is messy. So it helps to have things documented, just like with gifting. It helps if ever somebody is going to contest something that's written in the will or something that's been done. Mm. So if Michael decides to give away and gift everything he owns before he dies, um, and and whoever might be named in the well or whoever might be a beneficiary, whether he has a will or not, uh, might come back and say, no, 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 that's not your stuff. That's that's the estate stuff. And I get part of the estate. Um, having that documentation is really, really critical. And this is a big part of the work I do is talking to people about how do we make sure that our wishes can be followed with the least amount of resistance. And one of those things is document, document, document. And the other is discuss, discuss, discuss. You have to talk about it and you have to document those wishes. Okay, this is, this is great to know. Okay, let's get back to your business. You had mentioned that you work primarily with groups. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. So. Tell us about the the standard kind of workshops that you offer. Certainly, yeah. So um, two hour workshops because that's about as much cognitive loan as load as most people can handle in one sitting. Uh, basically, they are practical applications. So it'll start with 
uh, I, I like discussion-based workshops. I'm not a PowerPoint person. I, I don't like to just stand in front and be the sage on the stage, so to speak, and just tell people stuff. I like it to be very interactive. I want to respect the wisdom and the information in the room. Um, it generally starts out as discussion-based where we talk about, hey, what are you here to learn about? And then I will present some information and a path forward. And my philosophy is simplicity. Basically, anything you can do over a cup of tea uh, or a pot of tea, keeping it very simple, very short, something that you can do that's not going to take a month of your life. Hmm. And remember, when you're planning for end of life, you have the rest of your life to do it. So it doesn't all have to be done on a weekend. It doesn't all have to be done once. It should be an iterative process. And as you change, your wishes are going to change. So a workshop with me is going to be an opening discussion, some information sharing, some talking about your roles and responsibilities, the risks and your rights, because rights are very important to me, and being able to advocate for yourself and know what you're getting into. So roles, responsibilities, risks and rights. Then we talk about what's your what's your plan of action. So what can you do that's simple and small to move yourself forward? I don't believe in um, self-help tourism, you know, coming to a class or going to a class and like, oh, that was nice to know, and then going about your life and not doing anything about it. I really want people to come out of a workshop with me going, I can do this. I can do something to get me towards my goal. It can be a little thing or it can be a big thing but I have a very clear articulated plan on what the next step is. Mm. Yeah. So okay. that's kind of what my philosophy is and how I roll. So do you work with, so, you know, I know it's a group setting, but do you, do you have people who do multiple workshops with you or do they come to one workshop? Like, how does that work? You know, it's really funny. Um, I have people that have come back to the same workshop over and over and over again. Because it's discussion-based, they're going to learn something new every time. You know, because I do work with the same organizations year over year, semester over semester, I have people like, I don't care what you're teaching, Gina. I'm just going to show up. I'm going to learn something new every time. Because one of my roles as well is to make sure that I'm always updated on the latest. So whether I'm talking about advanced care planning or whether I'm talking about executorship, I'm always needing to be up on the current legislation and what's going on and, and, and what people need to know that's new. And can you do workshops standalone? Absolutely. Can you come and just learn and not be ready to do anything? Absolutely. But also if you wanna practically, if you're there because you need to do something and you need that help and you need to need information to make decisions, you can do that as well. So some of my workshops come in series. So I have, I'm starting executor school in, in the spring in 2024, which is going to be four workshops that are all related to the different aspects of executorship. Um, because I think that's one role that people take on and they have no clue what that involves and it's a lot. So, and where else do you go for, educa for education if you're an executor? Most people will go sit in a lawyer's office and yeah. spend many right yeah, yeah um or they go to youtube and yeah or they yeah. ask their friends and family and they do something silly i get that all the time in my classes oh my neighbor's brother did this so that's what i'm gonna do i'm like please don't do that that's illegal yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh what a mess i i it's so good that you do this 
Okay, so here's, here's some of the crucial stuff. As individuals are listening to this and they're like, oh my gosh, I need this. How do they join some of your workshops? That's part one of the question, but also part two. As organizations hear this and they're like, ooh, we should provide this for our, for our team. What do they do? How do they get a hold of you? How do they, how do they get involved in this, what I believe, ultra crucial process? The easiest way to get into contact with me is through my website, which is Caron Consulting, C-H-A-R-O-N Consulting.ca, because hey, I'm in Canada. Um, there's a contact form on there. You can you can look at my list of offerings, uh, which change uh, semester over semester. Uh, some courses I take out, some I put back in. Um, everything is customizable. So that's one way to see what I offer and how to get in touch with me. Um, my social media platforms are a bit in flux right now. So I'm, I'm working on figuring out what social media platform I'm going to be for the relaunch in, in 2024. But you can always reach me through my website and I'm on LinkedIn. Okay, great. So. And of course, we'll have all the links uh, with all your stuff in the episode. So everyone just check that out. Okay, so as we're heading towards the end of the interview, uh, I am going to give you what we call the crucial three. And the crucial three are three increasingly difficult questions that are intended to stretch you a little bit. But before we get to that, uh, is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't talked about? Is there anything you want to hype up that you that we haven't hyped up? Or are there any questions you want to have for me? Well, um, hopefully shortly, I will be having not one, but two books published in the spring, if all goes well. Um, they're about 85% complete. So one is on departure planning, which is a series of checklists related to um, planning your body disposition, your disposal of your mortal remains, and then planning your memorial, your celebration of life, your funeral. It's meant to help you understand the decisions that need to be made so that you can have those important conversations. And it's called How to Dispose of a Body. Oh, yeah. A Canadian's Guide, right? <laughs> so um, second book is going to be a little bit more involved, but it, it, it relates my change management methodology to end of life and family emergency planning. That one's a little bit bigger and I'm still, I'm still slogging through that. Books aren't easy. So, uh, that'll be out when it's out, but do you have a working title for that one? I've been fiddling around with a couple, but ABC all because change equals D death. Um, uh, no, I'm not sure. <laughs> Can I suggest one? No, I don't have a title yet. <laughs> can, I, can I suggest a title for you? Yes. Death Wishes. Death Wishes. <laughs> Instead of Best Wishes? Death Wishes. There you go. Yeah, for sure. Death Wishes, the ABCs to your final D. Yep. There you go. Girl, I, I mean, this writes itself. Okay. Yes. Anything, anything else you want to hype up? Anything else we want to talk about? Any questions for me? Just know that... End of life planning, like I said, doesn't have to be done all at once. You don't have to worry about it. Just pick away at it a little bit at a time. Know you have the rest of your life to get it finished. Don't ignore it unless you're willing to take the risk of what happens if you do. Um, just get informed, right? Start start easy. Just, just learn what your options are. You don't have to make any decisions tomorrow. Just learn what your options are. For example, we talk about burial and cremation, but, you know, water cremation is coming. There are places in the States that are doing uh, composting. 
Um, there's all sorts of different options that may be available by the time you are ready to shuffle off this mortal coil. So being informed and at least knowing what options are is going to help when the time comes to make those decisions. So let's start with the first of the crucial three. We'll start light. Uh, pills and advice. People don't like taking either one of them. But different types of advice people are more comfortable with versus other kinds of advice. So if you were to think of all of the type of advice that you would be giving people around death education, getting ready for this, preparing for this, what's the one piece of advice that people don't take most often? Most often? What's the most ignored piece of advice? The honest answer? Mm -hmm. <laughs> getting a will. Yeah, really? <laughs> and why is that? I, I don't know. You know, they come to my classes, they're all excited. They're all like, yeah, I got to do this. I got to do this. But when the rubber hits the road and they really sit down, they're like, eh, I'll do it later. I'll wow. do it later. Wow. What a yeah. wild one. That's like the first, the first thing that I've got like planned for the spring of next year. I have, <laughs> I have people that have gone to like two years of death literacy classes and have not yet completed their end of life plan. And I don't know if that's a reflection on me or, or what's going on in their lives, but good intentions, right? Mm -hmm. I would rather someone be informed and not do anything, however, than not be informed and not do anything. Mm. Um, with that, I was looking at Monica's brief. This isn't the second question, but just as a interesting sidebar, uh, Monica mentioned to me what is the most commonly used receptacle for cremation. And do you want to do you want to share this? Because I think it's hilarious. When you are cremated, what happens is the crematorium will put your um, your remains, which are bone sharp bone fragments into an industrial clear, uh, quite thick plastic uh, bag with a, with a one of those very hard metal Crimp, crimping ties into a plain white cardboard box. That is your temporary receptacle. And what generally happens then is you get transferred over to the funeral home and they will put you in whatever urn or other container that you choose if you choose something else. So yeah. I, I heard something about a coffee tin. Oh my gosh, you wanted me to talk about the coffee tins? Yes. Um, funny enough, because I, you know, I, I work with funeral homes. Sometimes I get to go into the into the room where they have the where they transfer cremated remains from the temporary receptacle to the to the permanent or semi-permanent receptacle. And coffee cans are quite still quite popular. I don't know if it was because of the big Lebowski <laughs> popular, or if it's because it's not easy finding a container that, that that's that large sometimes. Um, uh, put me in yeah. a Tim Hortons container. That's what I yeah. want. Take me take me out with Timmy. Oh, with the clear lid. You know, you want you want the one with the clear lid, not you know, so that people can you know say hi to you and you get some sun on your. I want, I want to keep some eye contact going. going that's on. right. That's right. All yeah, right. coffee containers are popular. What else have I seen? Um, sports memorabilia. You know, like giant piggy banks, cowboy boot piggy banks, and things like that. Hmm. Um, <laughs> so in your work. Yes. You are very comfortable talking about the practicalities of, of death. Yes. What about the practicalities of life? 
So you're sitting with people, talking to them about the end of their lives while they also might be living the most impractical scenarios in their life. So does that factor into your work? And if so, how? The most important thing that we that we acknowledge when we're when we're acknowledging our mortality is that we have a finite life. Mm -hmm. And when we acknowledge mortality, we acknowledge that we do have a limited time left and that we can make better decisions about how we use it. And I think it's a natural byproduct of planning for end of life is to go, okay, I am going to die someday. So what am I going to do with the time I have left? So the practicalities of life are around live your life. Do not do shoulds anymore, right? If you hear yourself saying, I should be doing this, don't do it. It's obvious you don't want to. Don't shame yourself into doing something. But also remove those toxic people and toxic things in your life that you think aren't helping you live anymore. Mm, and also, yeah. good conversations. Keep those conversations going. Well, you know, I went through a real difficult period of my life around 2016, 2017. And I'll say like one of the best things that came from that was my tolerance of spending time with people that were difficult became zero mm percent. -hmm. But extracting myself from those relationships was harder than I anticipated because it's like, you know, you, you, you kind of part of friend groups and this and that. And, you don't want you don't want to invite someone to your party but you feel like you can't and at one point i was just like oh this sucks like i'm just not doing this anymore and i was like damn the consequences i don't care like i don't care if i hurt feelings i just don't want to spend time with people who make me feel bad or are hard to spend time with and yeah. it's been like one of the most freeing things because also it's like as i've become much more aware of the end of my life I've become much more aware of how I want to live the rest of my life. And it is not managing difficult people. I don't want to do that. And so I don't. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, so the benefit of acknowledging that we are finite is being able to make good quality decisions about mm -hmm. how we do spend the time that we have here on the planet. And I think that in itself is the biggest, the biggest lesson. And the biggest piece of advice I can give people is if you want a reason to do your will and to do your end of life planning, that's it right there. It will give you a better quality of life. All right. So the last question for you is with all your wisdom, all your knowledge, all of the stuff that you know about death, is there any part that you yourself are not properly prepared for to the level that you would like? Oh, yeah. I mean... There's always paperwork to be updated. I'm not going to lie. There's always paperwork to be updated. And sometimes I leave my house in the morning and go, hey, if I get hit by a bus today, somebody's going to have to clean up the dishwasher. You know, those are the things that bother me, which is very strange sometimes. But um, it's the footprint. It's thinking about the footprint that I'm going to be leaving behind. How am I positively impacting the world? And that's kind of how I live my life now is how am I positively impacting? How am I being kind? Um, these are the things that I think about when I think about my mortality mm. is, yeah, what's what's my legacy going to be? Mm. Well, after that free advice that you gave us today, I think Mike and I could commit to coming and cleaning out your dishwasher if anything <laughs> unexpected happens. So we got you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. With that, uh, this was wonderful speaking to you today. Uh, any last words before we sign off? Uh, 
you know, no, I keep being mortal and, and enjoy your life and, uh, don't worry about death. It'll take care of itself. Heck yeah. Can I, can I tell you something funny before I, before I end, uh, the last record that, that, uh, I was a part of, um, I have always wanted to do, and this is like a within culture reference. I've always wanted to do like a unity slash uniform choice style poem at the end of a record. And I did one all about death. It's real deep. So we'll leave it, we'll leave it at that. That's awesome. All right, everyone. Uh, this was a great episode. Uh, Gina, I had so much fun talking to you and also learned a ton. So I really appreciate it. Everybody, please check out all of Gina's links. Uh, make sure to reach out if you have any, uh, anything you want to talk about. And as always, we appreciate your support. I'll see you next time on One Step Beyond. Dancing on the brink of death like there's no end. Yet each moment could be the last. Within a breath, a life has passed. The reality of the end of my life is at the edge of what I can perceive. Death is staring back at me. So I want to accept that all I love and hold dear someday will disappear. That time will turn riches to dust and that wisdom and love are the only wealth to trust. I want to accept the finality of death, to be reminded to live, and measure each day, not by what I get, but what I give. I want to accept that there's an end and that it's in sight. So I will try to find in every breath life in death.